0: to the book of Haggai in the Old Testament. You say, where? Yeah, in the book of Haggai in the Old Testament. Uh, Go to the book of Matthew, then flip back a couple of books backwards, and you'll eventually come to the small little book of Haggai. Haggai, Zechariah, and Malachi. Um, The book of Haggai is is divided into four different messages. Now, we're not going to talk about all four of them this morning, We're just going to talk about the first one, and it's, to me, the most important one, the major one. And the book of Haggai, as small as it is, I think some 30 or 40 verses, um, this, this prophet, when he writes, he really records everything in specific detail. And one of the things that's interesting about Haggai is that he actually dates, he's very specific with his prophecies from the Lord. If you look at chapter 1, verse 1, it says, In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai. Then chapter 2, verse 1, In the seventh month, on the 21st of the month, the word of the Lord came to the prophet Haggai. Chapter 2, verse 10, On the 24th day of the ninth month, in the second year of Darius. And then chapter 2, verse 20, and again, the word of the Lord came to Haggai on the 24th day of the month, saying, so Haggai here is very specific, and he gives us four different messages, but we're going to focus on the first message that he uh, is going to talk about today, and it's up here on the screen. It's the dangers of what we call misplaced priorities, and as we go through chapter number one, because that's the focus here this morning, uh, it's quite apparent that Israel's priorities were not in line with God's priorities. And and that's the main focus. And I think as we begin the new year, what a good text to look at and to help remind us about what's important to God ought to be important to us. It ought to be the start of every year. It ought to be the start of every day, every hour of our day. But our priorities can be misplaced, and we know that, just like any other thing in our lives. Let me consider these two small stories. Surprised to see an empty seat at the Super Bowl stadium, a diehard fan remarked about it to a woman sitting nearby. It was my husband's, the woman explained, but he died. I'm very sorry, said the man. Yet I'm really surprised that another relative or a friend didn't jump at the chance to take the seat reserved for him. Beats me, she said. They all insisted on going to the funeral. A group of friends were deer hunting and paired off in twos for the day. That night, one of the hunters returned alone, staggering under an eight-point buck. Where's Harry? said one of the friends. Well, Harry had a stroke of some kind. He's a couple miles back up the trail. You left Harry laying there and carried the deer back? A tough call nodded the hunter, but I figure no one is going to steal Harry." You know, obviously from those two simple stories, we know that priorities can get misplaced easily. Maybe not as comically as those two stories would give us, but they can be easily misplaced. And in order for us to get and and understand what Haggai is going to be referencing here in chapter 1, in order for us to get the most from this text... I need to take just a few minutes and explain how we got here to the book of Haggai, because it's not a book that we ordinarily come to. It's a minor prophet in the Old Testament, and I need to explain just a little bit about the historical context. So just go with me in your Bible timeline, in your brain here, back to King David, okay? So 500 years ago from the time of Haggai, King David is the one who's ruling, And he's ruling Israel. For 40 years, he rules and he reigns the nation of Israel. And, of course, he has his problems with misplaced priorities, but that's not a discussion for today. So he rules for 400 years, conquers a lot of land, um, is not allowed to build the temple, gets Israel into a place of security and safety. And God says, I don't want you to build the temple. David, I want your son Solomon to build the temple. So Solomon comes to the throne. He rules for 40 years, and he is permitted to build the temple, and he takes on this extravagant temple-building project, seven and a half years to build the temple. And some of the details are fascinating if you ever get a chance to read. As a result, Solomon also has some misplaced priorities. Yeah, uh, A thousand of them, we'll say. Um, He gets into marrying other women and other wives, 300 concubines, 700 wives, a lot of misplaced priorities there. Um, And yet it was the time of Israel's peace and prosperity. Now, no offense to my mother in law, but 700 mother in laws, there's not a lot of peace and prosperity (laughs) during the days of Solomon, okay? So for 40 years, he rules and he reigns. But at the end of his reign, the kingdom gets split. Two leaders emerge. Jeroboam and Rehoboam, the Boam brothers. They weren't actually brothers. Jeroboam takes the ten tribes of the north, and he wants his own kingdom. Rehoboam, Solomon's son, takes the two tribes of the south, and they have a kingdom. And so for the matter of 200 years, these two kingdoms side by side coexist. And they have their own land, and they have their own king if you read through the text of like First and Second Samuel, First and Second Kings and Chronicles, it's like a soap opera going back and forth. The king of the north and the king of the south. And the king of the north did this and the king of the south. And if you read through those, you're probably racking your brain trying to keep everything aligned. And there have been some great men that have organized all those details out so you can keep it aligned. But for 200 years, they coexisted side by side. Then long comes the nation of Assyria, and Assyria comes into the land about 700 B.C. or 700, yeah, 700 B.C. or so. And they take captive those 10 tribes of Jeroboam. And they take them captive. They take them back into the land of Assyria. And that, those 10 tribes of Israel are assimilated into Assyrian life, culture, and the people. They never return back. But you've got two tribes left, the tribe of Benjamin and the tribe of Judah, the two important tribes And for another 100 years, these tribes exist. And so they're still in the land of Israel. But along comes the Babylonians. By the way, New Year's resolutions, you can thank the Babylonians for that. They're the ones who uh, uh, designed that, thought about that. Uh, Again, that's for another sermon. Babylon comes along, takes Israel captive, burns their cities. Burns. Burns the temple to the ground. Two well-known characters, Ezekiel and Daniel, ministered to the Jewish people while they were in exile. So at the end of those 100 years, Babylon comes and takes the Jewish people into exile. So for 70 years, the Jewish people were in exile. God promised, though, that at the end of the 70 years, he would lead them out of exile. And he did that. And while the Jewish people were in Babylon, they could practice formal worship as the law prescribed, but they lacked an authorized temple. They lacked um, a a temple and an altar as well. Of course, they prayed privately towards Jerusalem. You remember the story of Daniel praying three times a day, and they also probably prayed publicly. They assembled together in synagogues, had some kind of basic worship of God informally. But at the end of the 70 years just as God had promised the Jewish people are allowed to return back to their homeland. So at least three waves of exiles come back, and they take advantage of this opportunity to return after 70 years of exile to return to their homeland. About 50,000 Jews returned in this first wave, Ezra tells us. And both Haggai and Zechariah, the next Bible book here, were two of these returnees. Now during the years that followed these returnees started off having good priorities. They rebuilt the the brazen altar in Jerusalem. They resumed offering sacrifices on it. They celebrated the feast of tabernacles. They laid the foundation the foundation for the building of the second temple because the first temple had already been destroyed by Nebuchadnezzar some 400 years earlier. However, opposition comes along, as it always does. And the rebuilding of the temple resulted in postponement because of opposition. So for 16 years, we're told, as we read the biblical narrative, during this long period, apathy towards temple construction set in among the Jewish people. And at the end of those 16 years, that's where the book of Haggai enters the picture. Haggai is a prophet who was given to call the people back to their priorities. That was his main focus. There are four distinct messages in the book of Haggai, but the most important one here in chapter 1 is about misplaced priorities and how easy it is. I mean, even today, we live in a world that's so narcissistic, so inward focused, so selfish to lose sight of our priorities. And we can get lost quickly, even the best of us. The most solid, the most foundationally built Christians can still get lost. And as we go through this chapter, I hope that um, you take a look at God's priorities and to make sure that, especially coming into 2023, that his priorities are what your priorities are. I hope you're not going into 2023 saying, okay, Lord, these are my priorities for the year. (laughs) These are the things that I want to accomplish. No, why don't we ask God, Lord, what do you want me to accomplish for 2023? How do you want me to be used in 2023? What can I do? And to spend some time seeking and spend some time in prayer asking God how he can use you. So as we get into Haggai chapter 1 here, look at the first couple of verses with me in verses 1 through 4. And you see, Plainly here in the text, there's a statement of misplaced priorities, okay? So there's a statement made. Here it is, quite simple, a statement made. Listen to what it says. Chapter 1, verse 1. In the second year of King Darius, in the sixth month, on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet to Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, saying, Thus speaks Lord of hosts, the Lord of hosts, saying, this people says the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then the word of the Lord came by Haggai the prophet, saying, "Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses, and this temple to lie in ruins?" Now, no time is wasted. <laughs> when God wants to get to a point, He gets right to the point, and no time is wasted. Uh, And by the way, this is not an expression of the prophet's opinion as to what God said. Well, when God spoke to me, he kind of said this. He kind of wants to tell you this. No, no, Haggai is saying this is what he said. These are the words and what he says. Haggai boldly announces, this is what the Almighty says. Thus speaks the Lord of hosts. And if you ever read through the book of Haggai, the Lord of hosts, that phrase, that description of God is used 14 times. 14 times in two chapters. The book only contains 38 verses. That's once in every two and a half verses the Lord of hosts is mentioned. You think that's an important term? (laughs) It is. And the repetition needs to be considered. And the repetition is really the term just emphasizes that God is sovereign. It's almost as if God is saying, reminding the people that he sees what's happening. They can't hide their actions. They can't hide their thoughts from him. He sees and he knows all. It's been 16 years since the foundation for the temple was laid. 16 years. It's been sitting there, unfinished. Each day people walk by. Each day they look at it, hoping that the next person that comes by will actually do something about it. Strangely, it seems a lot like some church ministries. You know, the ones that are crying out for help, And we say to ourselves, well, I'm sure that someone else will help with that ministry. I mean, after all, that's not my niche. That's not the way God made me. You really don't want me working here with these kinds of people or in this kind of ministry. Or as the ancient Israelite might say, I'm not even a mason or a bricklayer. How can I help build construction, temple? I can't do that. I'm not even a mason or a bricklayer. I have no experience. But listen, God, the sovereign one here, he knows exactly what's happening. He knows the very thoughts of the people. And that's what he's saying in verse 2. He says, thus speaks the Lord of hosts. This people says, this is God saying, I know exactly what's in your heart. I know exactly what you're thinking. And and let me put it into words for you. I know exactly what you're saying. You're saying the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house is should be built. You get a vivid picture into the people's hearts when God himself says, this is what they're thinking. Wouldn't you love to have that ability sometimes? <laughs> what is that person thinking? What are they thinking? Because sometimes their face doesn't respond to what their actions are, or what their thinking is. You'd say, I would love to know. Maybe you wouldn't. <laughs> Maybe that's a good thing we don't know those kinds of things. They might be thinking bad things about you, so maybe that's not necessarily the best thing. But here, God says, this is what the people are thinking. The time has not yet come that the Lord's house should be built. For 16 years, it's laid in ruins. Of course, as an Israelite, you probably had a number of excuses. There's always an excuse, right? We could say, well, the Jews had adjusted to worship without the temple, during the Babylonian captivity, and they had. They had created synagogues. In fact, many of them didn't want to return from Babylon. They were comfortable living in Babylon. A new generation had arisen that had never seen that former place of worship. Or maybe some of the Jews experienced some disillusionment. They returned to desolate cities. Everything was burned to the ground. Hostile neighbors, scarcity of food and shelter. How can we focus on building a house for God when we don't even have a place to live. And they experienced poverty from the failure of crops and a harvest. The Samaritans, an enemy of the Jews, wanted to help the Jews with the rebuilding process, but the Jews refused, <coughs> causing the Samaritans to want to sabotage their efforts. Now we've got enemies coming in here that we've got to worry about. But the desire to construct their own houses and engage in their own personal affairs is what happened. What happened? Can't you hear the Israelites saying, We don't have time for that. We don't have time to build the house. We're just, can't you see, we're just too busy. We're just trying to get reestablished here in the land. You know, it, it'll get finished in time, Lord. We'll put it on our list. We'll put it on our to do list, Lord. It will get done. Rest assured, it will get done. And, and why don't you let us do it your way? Or why don't you let us do it our way, rather? Besides, sometimes our way is better. And if you listen closely, you can hear yourself acting just like the Israelites. You know, in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul faced a similar problem with the church at Corinth. Remember the church of Corinth, the one the pastor's been preaching about, the Corinthian Christians? He spent more than 18 months, 18 months establishing that church, and they just seemed not to want to grow. They had, tr- they had struggles. They had problems. He wanted to give them the meat of the word, but they can only handle the milk. They were not growing in the Word because they refused to let go of the world. And how true is that for us? How do we expect to grow in our faith? How do we expect to better prioritize our life as Christians if we can't let go of the world? You know, in verse 4, you have some really emphatic pronouns. Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins. Do you hear what he's saying? Is it time for you yourselves to dwell in paneled houses and this temple to lie in ruins? God's saying, wait a minute, wait a minute. You yourselves are dwelling in houses, but I don't even have a house. You yourselves are safe and secure, but there's no place for my presence to be. You yourselves, but what about me? The contrast is great here. The contrast is not between these fancy houses. Uh, the, the text here in says paneled houses. Don't think it's fancy houses. Just think of the difference between they have houses that are finished and God's house is not finished. It's left, it's left unfinished. Uh, speaking of driving to see my parents, I, I can't remember this time, but it seems like every time when I would go to see my parents, um, there was always this church building um, somewhere in Western Maryland. I can't remember where, but for the longest time, the foundation was laid and it had this basic structure of just steel. That's it? And I feel like it's been there for like 10 years. <laughs> and every time I'd go by, thinking, "Okay, is it going to be different? Is it going to be built?" Or every time, "Is it going to be different? Is it going to be built?" It just laid in, in, in foundation stage and not built. You've seen houses before that the foundation is laid, and what happened? Well, they ran out, they ran out of money <laughs> to build the rest of the house. But this is God's house we're talking about. The people here are saying, hey, we don't have time for that yet. God says, why don't you? You're dwelling in houses that are complete finished. Why can't you come over and finish my house? The temple was an outward form of the real presence of the Lord among his people. To refuse to rebuild the temple was at best saying that it didn't matter whether the Lord was present with them. Every day that we live on this earth and we go through the day without even attempting to give God priority in some way, we stand just as guilty as the Israelites. What they were saying at best is like, Lord, your presence is not important. Their refusal to Rebuild the temple so that God's presence could fill the temple like it did before. Saying, your presence is not important. Would we dare walk around today doing the same thing? Saying, Lord, your presence is not important. Of course, we today have the Holy Spirit who lives inside of us and goes with us wherever we go. But we go around doing the same thing. Holy Spirit, we don't need your help. We can do it on our own. That is the misplaced priorities. He's there. He's willing to help. He wants to help. The Lord states quite clearly through Habakkuk, or excuse me, we're not in Habakkuk, in Haggai. I get those two mixed up sometimes. In Haggai, that their priorities were misplaced. Now God says once again, he gets to the crux of the matter, the consequences of misplaced priorities. Look at verse 5. Now, therefore, says, again, the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. You have sown much and bring in little. You eat, but don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages earns wages to put into a bag with holes. Thus says the Lord of hosts, once again, consider your ways. Go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified, says the Lord. You look for much, but indeed it came to little, and when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord of hosts, because my house that is in ruins, while every one of you runs to his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains and on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever the ground brings forth, on men and livestock and all the labor of your hands. The Lord says, consider your ways. That's the key. Literally in the Hebrew it reads, set your heart upon your ways. In a more practical sense, the phrase means, consider where your chosen lifestyle is leading you. Consider where your chosen lifestyle is leading you. Where are your steps going? Where is it leading you? Here's an excerpt from a book entitled Feminine Faces by Clovis Chappelle. And he wrote that when the Roman city of Pompeii was being excavated, the body of a woman was found mummified by the volcanic ashes of Mount Vesuvius. And her position told a tragic story. Her feet pointed toward the city gate, but her outstretched arms and fingers were straining for something that lay behind her. The treasure for which she was grasping was a bag of pearls. And Chappelle says that although death was hard at her heels and life beckoned her beyond the city gates, she could not shake off their spell. But it was not the eruption of Vesuvius that made her love pearls more than life. It only froze her in this attitude of greed, this direction. Haggai says, consider your ways. Consider where your chosen lifestyle is leading you. And then he says in verse 6, look what happens because of your ways. You've sown much. You bring in little. You sow a lot. As a a gardener, I try to always make sure I have plenty. I sow a lot because you know that there's one, two, maybe three, four plants that are just not going to take. And so you sow extra. He says, you sow a lot here, but only comes up as little. You eat, but you don't have enough. Has the idea of being filled. You drink, but you're not filled with drink. You're not satisfied. You clothe yourselves, but no one is warm. And he who earns wages, earns a wage to put, a, to put it in a bag with holes. Otherwise known as inflation. Right? Right? They had all these things, food, planting, wine to drink, clothes to wear, good jobs as well, all these things they had, but there was no true satisfaction. How can they live? How can they have existence? How can they have satisfaction when God's temple is in ruins? Israel was an agrarian society. He describes their gross national project in terms of agriculture. It was unimpressive. It's not that the crops failed, but they didn't live up to their expectations. Demand was great. People wanted, always want more to eat, to drink, to wear. No one went hungry, thirsty, or naked. They had goods, but life eluded them. They weren't satisfied. And to top it all off, you wouldn't believe what I had to pay for this. Can you hear him saying it? It's not that they had no money, but it didn't go far. It's like going to the grocery store. Can you imagine? Do you know what I had to pay for this week? Do you know? What a dozen eggs has gotten to? I hear it all the time. Do you know how much it costs? Maybe an investment in chickens might be better for you. Anyway, that's for another sermon. Again, in verse 7, the Lord speaks up. Consider your ways. Consider your ways. He says, go up to the mountains and bring wood and build the temple that I make pleasure in it. And be glorified, says the Lord. Consider your ways, consider where your lifestyle is leading. He said, Look, there's plenty of stone from the destruction of the first temple, Solomon's temple, and the necessary heavy timbers, the big beams, already had been imported, brought into the land. Ezra chapter 3 tells us that for you to start the structure of the temple. And the Lord urges the people, said, Listen, go up into the mountains and get all the material and continue to build the temple. They needed to do the work of building it with the material that was already there. He says it's already here. You just need to build it. (coughs) It doesn't need to be fancy. It doesn't need to be like Solomon's temple. (coughs) You just need to build it. You just need to do it. It's similar to a person maybe who has trouble getting a job. And you probe further with that person. Why, well, you haven't been in trouble. Why I've put out so many applications here and there and this, and I've got a few callbacks, and it just wasn't the right fit. And then you probe further, and they say, well, I'm holding out for a management position. And you're like, well, maybe that's true. But if you've already got a couple of callbacks, <coughs> don't you want to follow through and get a job and provide? God's saying the materials are already here. They're, they're, they're here. But if we were to go into a different passage of Scripture, and I'm not going to go there this morning, we would find out that what actually happened is that they started using the materials that were prepared for God's temple to build their own houses first. And God said, look, consider your ways. Consider your ways. Build the temple. How can you dwell in your houses? How can you have things completed and yet every day walk by and see my temple that's not built? and my house that's not there, and my presence that's not with you because my temple is not built. The importance wasn't the size or the magnificence, but the fact just build the temple. The Lord gives them proof. He says, look, verse 9, you look for much, but indeed it came to little. When you brought it home, I blew it away. Why, says the Lord? Because of my house that is in ruins while every one of you runs to his own house. They brought grain home from the harvest, God blew it away. God stopped the dew, is withheld, there is no fruit. So drought already in place. The Lord's telling him, don't you see? I'm trying to get your attention. Stop focusing on yourselves and get my temple finished. Stop focusing on this and start building it. For 16 years you have walked by it every single day. <coughs> Why is it taking so long? The Lord tells them their priorities are misplaced. Look at what's happening around you, nation of Israel, Jewish people. Obviously, God's trying to send you a message. There are consequences for not making my house a priority. But now it's the people's time to do something. And look at how they respond. Verse 12. Then Zerubbabel, the son of Shiltiel, and Joshua, the son of Jehoshaddak, the high priest, with all the remnant of the people, obeyed the voice of the Lord their God and the words of Haggai the prophet as the Lord their God had sent him. And the people feared the presence of the Lord. Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. So the Lord stirred up the spirit of Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and the spirit of Joshua, the son of Jehozadak, the high priest, and the spirit of all the remnant of the people. And they came and worked on the house of the Lord of hosts, their God, On the 24th day of the sixth month in the second year of Darius. You go back to verse 1. The sixth month on the first day of the month, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet. 23 days later. That's it. 23 days later. The response of the people comes in the form of some, some actions here. It says they obeyed, they feared, and they began to rework on the temple. And you know what it says? When they obeyed, did you see that small little verse there? Verse uh, 13, Then Haggai, the Lord's messenger, spoke to the Lord's message to the people, saying, I am with you, says the Lord. The minute they said, okay, we need to fix this. Our priorities are misplaced. We need to fix it. God says, okay, I'm going to be with you now. Because now you've decided to put my priorities above your priorities. Now that you've done that, now I'm going to be with you. Now, I'm going to help you. Now, we're going to get this project done because you've committed to obeying what I've asked you to do. You've committed to it. This reinforces, by the way, the pattern of biblical worship followed by service. In the New Testament, the Great Commission in Matthew 28, Jesus' followers obeyed by traveling to the mountain which Christ had directed them. And there they worshiped. Only after they acknowledged God and worshiped did God send them out to go serve in the name of Christ. Or Romans chapter twelve, famous verse is: "I plead with you, brothers, present your body as a living sacrifice, whole and acceptable, which is your reasonable service." You see, the solution to Israel's priorities came after they had reevaluated them, and that's typically what happens when our priorities are out of whack and we know it. Then we reevaluate them, and once we reevaluate them, we find the solution to them. It was not just. Important that they rebuild, though, but they must rebuild with the right motivation. It wasn't, okay, if we rebuild the temple, then the Lord will bless us. No, no, they needed to do it with the right motivation. We're going to rebuild the temple because it's what we're supposed to do, period. And if the Lord chooses to bless us, great, but if he doesn't, it doesn't matter because we know that we're supposed to not let the house of God lie in ruins while we live in our own houses. And that's true of the church of Corinth we've been talking about. It's quite obvious that the Israelites' priorities were misplaced and they were concerned with their own comforts more than with making sure that God's presence was with them. They're more concerned with building their house than building God's house. But they re examined their priorities, they got them back on track. So, what about us for the 21st century? <laughs> Where do our priorities lie? Are our priorities any different? than the world's priorities. Our priorities can easily get derailed and misplaced. By the way, that's the importance of coming to worship once a week, to help realign your priorities, to help realign your heart, realign your thinking to be focused on Christ, on his word, to remember, oh, that's right, the Bible does tell us that. We need to make sure we're doing that. You realize that preaching a lot of times is more just being a reminder. I'm not, there's nothing new here necessarily. I'm just reminding you of what God has already said. And that's all the Old Testament prophets did, is that they reminded the people of what God had already said in his law, in the books of Moses. He said, don't you remember? God said this and you're not doing it. Okay, yeah, yeah, we need to do that. We, We need to fix that. And so God was reminding them. But where do our priorities lie? Founder of McDonald's, Ray Kroc, was asked by a reporter what he believed in. He said, I believe in God, my family, and McDonald's. Then he says, when I get to the office, I reverse the order. McDonald's, my family, and then God. You can find the real priorities of a person, not what they do on Sunday, but what they do the rest of the week. So for 2023, allow me to give you four simple ways to keep your priorities focused. Four simple ways to keep your priorities focused. Number one: are you ready? It's a big one. Spend time with God. Spend time with God. If God is our friend and to whom we trust our life and eternal destiny, don't think, don't you think? <laughs> we ought to spend time with Him. Sometimes it's the simple things that are the hardest things to do, isn't it? If you say to somebody, if God says to you, listen, I want you to go all the way across the globe to Africa, to an unnamed tribe, and I want you to be a missionary to them, and I want you to preach the gospel to them. Some people, yes, I want to go. And then God says, okay, I want you to read your Bible every day for the rest of your life, just five or 10 minutes a day. Can't you send me to Africa, Lord? Really? Do you want that? Spend time with God. A story is told of George Mueller having read the Bible through more than 100 times. Okay, I don't know how old George Mueller lived to be. If he lived to be 100 years old and he started reading the Bible with coherency when he was 10 years old maybe, I don't know, then that's at least more than one time a year. He says this, and he makes this statement. and this statement, he says, I look upon it as a lost day when I have not had a good time over the word of God. Think about that. I look at it as a lost day when I haven't, basically what he's saying, when I haven't spent time with God. A lost day, a lost day, a misguided day It's it's not going right. It's not going well. I'm lost. My mind is frazzled. My emotions are all over the place. I can't think straight. It's a lost day. He considers it a lost day if he hasn't spent time with God. A lost day. Do you get that? You see how powerful that is? He says, I consider it a lost day when I haven't had a good time over the Word of God. Friends often say, I have so much to do. So many people to see, I cannot have fine time for scripture study. He says, perhaps there are not many who have more to do than I do. He says. Mueller goes on to say, for more than fifty years, I have never known one day when I had not more business that I could get through. For four years, I've annually gone through about thirty thousand letters. Most of these have passed through mine own hands. It's a lot of emails. And there's the fact that I pastor a church with 1,200 believers, have charge over five rather large orphanages, have a printing house that publishes millions of tracts and books and Bibles. But I've always made it a rule never to begin work until I've had a good season with God and His Word. He says, It's a lost day. The day is lost to me if I haven't spent it in some fashion with God, in some way with God. It's lost. It's unfortunate because I think sometimes we have a lot of lost days, days that we don't spend time with God. So again, real simple. Number one, spend time with God. Number two, put the Lord's interest first. Put the Lord's interest first. You know, in a society where we're told to put our interests first, it can be challenging, it can be difficult. Aren't you glad that God made us a priority to him? Think about it. What would it be like if God didn't make us a priority? I mean, you go back to Genesis Adam and Eve in the garden. The minute that Eve took of the fruit and Adam took of the fruit, the minute they ate and sin entered the human race, right then, the very next words come from God. And God says, I have a plan. I have a plan to fix what you guys have just messed up in the garden. It's going to take some time, but that plan involves a Redeemer who would die and who would be the sacrifice for your sins and the sins for every single person in the entire human race. He did it the very minute after it happened. So look back at the story and think, well, what if God said, well, okay, Adam, Eve, I told you not to, but you did it anyway, so all right. Let's just sit back and see how this all pans out wonder what it would have been like. It would have just gotten worse and worse and worse, and we know it got worse and worse and worse. Three chapters later in Genesis, God says, mankind is evil and needs to be, I need to start over with Noah and his family. But the very first thing God said, the very first thing, put the Lord's interest first. Number three, find out what is important to God and do it. Find out what's important to God and do it. The Bible is full of these simple truths that we can enumerate for hours. And the more you read the Bible, the more you realize, hey, I need to do this. Or, hey, I didn't know the Bible told me that I needed to do that, so now I need to do that. Or, Lord, please forgive me, I didn't know that I was supposed to do that. But now you can do it. And the more you read your Bible... The more you're in it each day, the more you understand what God requires of you, what God wants of you. Find out what is important to God and do it. Then number four, by the way, you can add Matthew 6, 33 with that that point. Seek first the kingdom of God and his righteousness. Find out what's important to God. Seek that first and then do it. And then number four, Eliminate those things that hinder your relationship with him. I said things, not people. Okay. Eliminate those things that hinder your relationship with him, whatever it might be. You ever wonder why throughout the Old Testament, time and time and time again, God told the Israelites, stop worshiping idols. Stop going after idols. Get rid of the idols out of your house. Stop going to your neighbor's idol party. Stop <coughs> fraternizing with other neighbors who have idols. If we didn't know any better, we'd think that God's hobby horse in the Old Testament was idol worship. But that was the fundamental thing that caused Israel to push off God off their priority list was idolatry. The first commandment, thou should have no other gods before me. And secondly, you should not make any other God in any other image that looks anywhere near or around or like me. The very first two commandments, the Lord said, I know this is going to be a problem for you, so I'm telling you ahead of time. When I got into the land of Israel, God says, push out all the people. They're going to tempt you to come back and worship. And when you worship idols, you take your focus off me eliminate those things that hinder your relationship with him. The fundamental thing that caused Israel to push God off their priority list was idolatry. And idolatry doesn't come in the form of idols. I guess in some parts of the world it does. But today it comes in whatever's taking the place. You get up in the morning it seems like idolatry is just hitting you in the face constantly all day long. Things are pulling at you. To take your focus off of Him. The message of Haggai is not merely just a physical lesson in temple building, it's also a spiritual lesson. Because the imagery of a temple is not just physical, but it's also spiritual, right? Because we Christians are temples of God. 1 Corinthians tells us that. And we have a foundation that's been laid by Christ, but our temple is not being built. Why? Because our priorities are not right. Why did the nation of Israel, every day they got up and every day they walked to work or to the market or to see a friend or whatever it might be, and they walked by the temple. Foundation was built, nothing else. 16 years, they walked by every single day, not having a desire to build it. You wake up in the morning, you leave the house, go to work, And maybe you walk by your Bible every single day. Oh, I'm late for work, I gotta get to work. And we wonder why, we wonder why (laughs) there is this idea of biblical illiteracy amongst even Christians. They don't even know sometimes what's in the scriptures. You walk by everything. Well, how come my foundation is strong? Well, how come I'm not a strong believer? Well, you walk by your foundation every day and you don't do anything about it. You walk by your Bible on the nightstand every day and you don't do anything about it. Wake up 10 minutes earlier. Read a little bit. And, and by the way, you can't say, I'm holding out for a management position, okay? You can't say, oh, look, Jeremy, I, you know, I don't have a Bible degree like you do or I don't have an education like you do or I never went here like you did. Well, I didn't either until I went there and got it, okay? There's, there's, there's not an excuse, or It's too complicated to read it. You have to make it a priority. You have to make it a priority. You have to make it a priority. God's house laid in ruins for the Israelites. And yet when Haggai presented them and said, consider your ways, consider where your chosen lifestyle is leading you, when they examined their priorities, three weeks later, it says, they began to rebuild the temple. Three weeks later, that's it. That's all it took. When they looked at what was wrong. The only one to blame for your foundation being weak or unstable is you. Because God says, when you want to build that foundation, then I will help you. Then I will be with you. You can't expect him to do all the work. You want to have to want to build that foundation. And when you want to build that foundation, he's going to come along and help you build that foundation. You know, I have a feeling sometimes that um, God wants to do some great things with Christians all over the world. He wants to do some great things with them. If they would just make him a priority. God says, I want to do this great thing with you but you have to want to serve me first. You have to want to make me a priority first. Think of all the potential that is out there with Christians all over the globe who if they just did the simple things of making God a priority each and every day when they woke up in the morning, think of what God could do. Think of how he could change things. You know, the book of Haggai is during a time when Israel had come back to the land it was during a time when they had come out of the exile. Israel had enemies still that were trying to dispel them and push them outside the land. There were things going on all around them, but yet they still focused on making God their priority. Uh, if If God is not at the center of everything you say or everything you do, your foundation is not going to grow. It's just not going to be built. It's laid by Jesus Christ. You have that salvation. You have that eternity. You have that home in heaven. I get that. But your foundation is not going to be built. Your life is not going to be built if he's not the very first thing of every part of your life. I know I'm probably preaching to the choir because you're here at 9 o'clock on the day after New Year's Eve. I get it. I get it. But sometimes even the best of us need to be reminded to make sure that God is a priority. Four simple ways that you can make Him a priority in 2023. Not rocket science, things that you've heard before. But you've got to take some action. You've got to actually step out and actually start doing it.